Hi, this is Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Our podcast today is with Ron Hawk of Hawk Tools. I'm very excited about this. Hey, Ron, how are you? Good, Gary. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I've been using your tools for a long time. but It's a, ple- it's a pleasure for me as well. Well, good. So tell us a little bit, for those who don't know, about, about your history as a toolmaker. Well, a little bit is a uh, relative thing. I can go on and on. Uh, um, Leave your relatives out of this. We, <laughs> well, actually, my relatives are involved in this story. Oh. I was, I was uh, back in Los Angeles uh, working for my father, uh, and I discovered that you can only work for my father. I couldn't work with my father. So, uh, And this was a sheet metal and aluminum extrusion manufacturing company. So uh-huh. I was comfortable doing metalworking stuff. Right. And uh, he decided to retire. I didn't want to take over his business. Believe me, I'm making a long story short here. Um, And he moved out to the desert. I moved up here to Fort Bragg, which is north of San Francisco, right on the coast. Uh And uh, we maintained a good friendship uh, after that. It it was dicey there for a while. So I needed something to do. And uh, I decided to try making uh, knives, uh, the handmade one at a time, custom made kitchen knife type thing. This was pre-internet. So the marketing was all, and the sales were all done, you know, craft fairs, and I was actually mailing out brochures and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So, uh, and then sometime during the first year or so of that, this was 1981 or 82, uh, one of the instructors uh, and one of the students from the Krenov School, which was at that time the College of the Redwoods Fine Woodworking Program, uh, came, they heard about me. They came to me and said, can you make blades for these planes we make? And that that was my first introduction to James Krenov was that encounter because I really didn't know who he was or what this was all about. Uh, right. They opened the classroom facility uh, by sheer coincidence the same month that we moved here. I think it may have been the same week that we actually moved here. Wow. So things were lining up for me in that regard. Um, I basically blew the guys off. I said, nah, you know, I'm busy here. I'm busy going broke, essentially. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and another friend of mine said, well, Ron, there's like 23 students. They make six or eight planes, you know, do the math dummy and figure, figure this thing out. So I made a batch of blades and they were extremely well received. I couldn't believe how um, uh, excited everyone was over having a better quality blade for these handmade planes. And that's the beginning of this thing. That's how it started. Uh, one thing led to another. Uh, I get requests for, I, I got requests for other kinds of blades for the, like the Stanley planes etc and started in building a small catalog and doing the work and eventually the internet came along and uh things went uphill uh quickly from there it, it got better yeah great um so how many different types of knives and blades do you turn out now roughly oh the the official price list or item list inventory item list is probably over a hundred things but okay. many of those are, are things you you don't see or you wouldn't have heard of uh, we do a lot of small runs for people, private label stuff, uh, specialty things for, you know, Luthier's Mercantile needs a blade for this little fancy plane. And they're not in our normal, they're not on the website. Website uh-huh. probably has, I don't know, 40 or 50 things on it. I'd, I've, I've lost count. That's great. I mean, geez. Oh, I know. I, I know. I, I, I'm still amazed at how this worked out and how fortunate I was and how lucky I was to just stumble into this. Not just that it suited me, because it, it does. It's, it's got exactly the kind of thing that I enjoy doing is, uh, you know, making a product, bringing it to market, and then selling it and doing the, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I discovered that woodworkers 
as a as a whole as a community are uh, amazing they're uh, they you are all wonderful people that that uh, you know when I when my phone rings it's not like I'm doing some sort of computer tech support where someone's grouchy or frantic there's always a friendly voice on the other end and then we chat for a while and it's high integrity and really decent people and I'm just I lucked out oh that's great yeah yeah I've always found uh I've been at lots of different shows over the years and someone will want to buy a book or something and uh and they won't have the cash or I won't have the the chip reader for a card and I said oh just mail me a check and they always do I'm not sure if I should make this public, but I've I've never been ripped off. Never had a bad check or a, a credit card fraud or nothing ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm grateful to uh, the woodworking community for being such decent people. Yeah, I think it's a it's a part of the deal I, to to be to be entered into the club. You have to be. Well, I, you know, I I suspect it is true. Also, you could probably say the same thing for jewelry makers or other people who are involved in something that that is a. A, a genuine uh, the, the the true definition of amateur, as I understand, has something to do with doing it for the love of it. And I have a feeling that people who do things simply for the love of doing it, whether they be uh, financially successful or not, become secondary. And I think those types of activities and those types of avocations or pursuits tend to attract people that are you know friendly and decent and uh, worth. I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for there. Good folks. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, interesting that you say it's, um, you know, you have a chat because I was going to ask what was what was harder for you to to work with quality control or customer relations? Well, that's a good question. Um, that, that's two very different hats. And yeah. what I found is that well, quality control just means I got to put on the, the hat and figure out how to solve that problem. And those are always I, I enjoy those problems. And what I discovered was that the the customer service hat is equally enjoyable because, uh, like I say, I, I, if I'm working, I often answer my own phone. If you if you haven't noticed that, uh, right. a lot of people comment on that. We're a really really small organization. People don't realize how tiny we really are. Uh, so I'm often the one that is there to pick up the phone, and I'm usually the one that has the information that person needs anyway. But if I'm working in the shop or doing something else, and the phone rings, that my first sense is, ah, geez, the phone's ringing, and I got to go answer it. So I right. you know, take off the protective gear and the headphones and the stuff, and I go answer the phone. And it's always someone that's just an absolute delight to talk to. Oh. So I'm always thinking, wow, that was great. I'm sure glad I answered the phone. Right, right. So um, how many people are out there grinding and forging? And oh, well, that, there, that's, that has two answers. Uh, one is that um, out here, meaning here in our Fort Bragg, you know, the international headquarters. The international headquarters. I've got I've got my wife Linda. She's uh, she's not grinding, but she grinds on her computer. She right. does the uh, newsletter and the marketing stuff. She's the marketing department these days. Um, and then I've got uh, my the machinists that started with me 36 years ago. We're growing old together. Um, named Larry. A lot of people know about Larry. Uh, um, he's now semi semi retired, mo- uh-huh. like mostly retired. Uh, so he's only working 10 or 12 hours a week. So he's doing the, just the custom stuff and the small run stuff, the real small batches of things. Um, and then I've got uh, a guy named Mark who is my shipping guy that does the shipping and the invoicing. And he does a lot of the customer support uh, from, from that desk also. 
and that's it. That's Hawk Tools oh, wow. here in Fort Bragg. That's all. That's everybody. Huh. However, there is a very high tech factory in France that is now doing the bulk of our routine production. All the all the uh, replacement blades, uh, all the blades that are you can identify them right away because they're the ones that are ground after heat treatment. So they're all shiny bright. They're sharp. They're flat. They're late. The logos are laser etched. The stuff that comes out of our shop is still black from the heat treater because, like I said, we're a really small shop and we don't have the big surface grinders to do the after heat treat grinding. Uh So if you buy one of the blades that we actually made in our shop here in Fort Bragg, uh, you're going to you're going to have to do the after heat treat grinding. I'm sorry. It's just a fact. Uh, So you will have to flatten the back and polish it up and, you know, put the edge on it and do that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So the the factory in France, to, to, to answer your question, um, I honestly have no idea how many people work on this stuff over there. It's a lot of it's very automated. Um, I, I visited the factory a couple of times and th- there's never a whole lot of people there. I think that's simply because they're they're so very efficient, and very, very good at what they do. They're a great company. We're very happy with them. The obvious question is why France? Why? Well, the uh, simple answer is that I got a really good price. Uh, I, I was, this was, geez, a long time ago, uh, before the whole Freedom Fries, we don't like France thing happened. Right. You know, yeah. you, I'm sure you remember that. Um, uh, we, I was sending out, uh, you know, faxing out sketches for requests for quotes for, for just the basic two-inch bench plan blade, because that's our, the one we sell the most of. So I said, okay, can you make these and how much to make X number of them? And I'd get replies from various places. I sent it to everybody I thought could possibly do it all around the country. And I got a, I got a response from a place in Connecticut, I think it was. And it was, he was the rep for this factory in France. And he said, you, he said I guarantee you're going to like this. It's going to work out. The price was really good. Uh, their quality has been excellent. There were a few small bumps in the road getting them to understand exactly what we needed. And, but that was minor. They're a great company to work with, and um, uh, they, they've stuck with me, and I've stuck with them, and we're, we, we have a good relationship. Was there a um, hand plane market over in Europe at that time? Was, were you brand new to them as far as a product? Well, um, the, the rep mentioned to I said, how come you understand this product so well? Because most of the places that would reply said, you know, what is this thing? What are we talking about here? Uh, but he seemed to understand it, and he said at that time that this same factory was doing some of Stanley English Stanley's production for blades. Oh, okay. now I've never I've never heard that from anyone else, and I've never seen or heard it, anything about it since. But they had no problem at all with this. They they're a, a company that does uh, industrial cutters, and mm-hmm. they used to be the the woman who owns it now. Her father uh, was had had the whole company, and it was part of the Sabatier family. Uh, a family of businesses. Apparently, Sabatier had a number of factories or something. I'm not real clear on the on the history. Um, and he sold off the the kitchen cutlery part and kept for his personal family. Uh, he kept the industrial cutters. So when we visited the factory, they have a display case out in front. This is a very very tidy place uh, and very proud of what they do. They're really good at it. And it was full of blades for things that I mean you couldn't imagine what they were for. They were so odd looking. Things right. like blades for cutting sod or fabric or parts for um, industrial-sized juicers, that kind of stuff. Things you would never think of. Right. That's, what they're, that's what they're making over there. And so I think they kind of enjoy our stuff because, you know, compared to some of that work that they do, which is extremely high tolerance, they do blades for ophthalmic surgery. So they're, I mean, all that really high-end stuff. 
uh-huh. our stuff's kind of casual and fun for them, I think, and they do a really great job with it. So uh-huh. we're we're good. I know enough about metallurgy to just to cut myself. That's why. <laughs> So here's my question. Do, you, do sure. you go to them or did you go to them with a formula? This is what I need? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah, I spec'd it out Ooh. exactly. They, and, the, and the specs are identical. I wanted uh-huh. O1 and then we added A2 because they could handle that. Uh, Rockwell 62, um, this amount of flatness, this amount of this and that. They right. asked me some questions for surface texture that I didn't know how to answer. I had to say, well, I don't know how to answer that. So I'd send them a sample and they say, okay, we got it. You know, that kind of thing. We, uh-huh. we, we worked together to end up with the correct specs. But but on, on an industrial level, it's not difficult to spec out a, a machine, a, right. a part made by machinery. You tell them, you know, the, here, there are rules about how to specify this and this and this and this. Some people may not know. So could you explain the difference, well, I don't know, quickly or not, uh, between O1 and A2 steel? Um, uh, metallurgically or on a, on a more practical uh, uh, usage basis? Both. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, on a on a metallurgical basis, the uh, O1 is about as close as we can get on a practical level in modern day um, actual supply th- that you can go buy to that which Grandpa used in the old planes that everyone reveres. It's an incredibly simple steel. It's got 0.95% carbon, and I forget exactly how much manganese um, and a couple other really small amounts of other stuff, but primarily it's just carbon and iron. The manganese allows it to, to oil harden, uh, to, to quench fully in oil, rather than to require the, the high-speed quenching of water or salt brine or those other kinds of water-hardening steels. Uh-huh. Um, so so the, the manganese, I, I, I can talk about this for an hour, so I won't. I'll stop right now. But the manganese slows that requirement down so that you can quench, you can dip it when it's bright red, orange, hot, um, at its what's called critical temperature, you dip it in the oil and it will fully harden, even though oil removes the heat more slowly than does water. Water quenching is faster than, of course. Yeah, and, and it's severe and brutal. It's like, you know, you can, you can break a glass by pouring hot water in it. Well, it's the same thing. If you put hot steel into cold water, you risk uh, a lot of deformation, even fracturing pieces will break. Uh, it's severe. So we yeah. don't like that because... Uh, we we've already put a lot of time and effort into making this part, sure. and now it comes out all potato chippy. We either have to figure out how to flatten it or throw it away and start over. So, um, the, so a two metallurgically, if we wanted to reduce that quench rate requirement even further, we would add other things, and some of those things that get added are chromium, um, vanadium, molybdenum, some of those other kinds of uh, more exotic uh, metals. And they, they contribute other mechanical aspects, but I, I believe the main reason they're added is to slow that quench rate requirement so that the, the, the O of O1 stands for oil, the A of A2 stands for air. So right. you can take it glowing bright orange out of the furnace uh, at critical temperature, uh, you know, which is like close to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You just take it out and it will fully harden in still air. You don't it's even have to... Yeah, you don't have to blow a fan. Well, if it's a great big casting of, or, right. or a block of machining that's got a lot of mass, uh, you might have to put a fan on it or something. But for a little skinny blade like we make, they just take them out and let them sit there. That's that. Well, here's so, a question. Yeah. Here's a question. How does the steel know it's not being annealed? I mean, isn't annealing where you get it cherry red hot and then let it cool very slowly? Well, duh, but, that, uh, but the steel does know which is very slowly and which is very quickly. 
annealing a, an air hardening steel requires very slow because it will harden in air. Right. So you'd have to pack it in something and bring the temperature, or, or maybe turn the oven off and let it cool overnight. I see. There right. are tricks. Okay. There are tricks there that I'm not really um, right. privy to, simply because we don't need to anneal anything. We buy our metal fully annealed, so uh, the, the annealing step is something that I I've not explored much beyond that. But you're exactly right. right that that is how it's done. You bring it to critical or near critical temperature, which is starting to glow. And and then just let it cool really slowly, and then the molecular structure will return to its ferrite state. Blah blah blah. There's right. lots in my book about that if you want to go into more detail. Yeah. But if you, but if you then remove the heat more more quickly, uh, you'll freeze that crystal structure in its high temperature state, and that's the hardening process. Cool. So it doesn't have anything to do with liquid nitrogen or. It's well, just there a- there are cryo treatments for that that do other things. Um, and that, that do involve temperatures that they use liquid nitrogen to achieve. Uh, with O1, there's not much to be gained there because all of the high temperature crystal structure will fully freeze out into the des- desired hard crystal structure, um, austenite and martensite, if you're keeping track. Yeah. Whereas with the, with the air hardening, because that quench rate requirement is so slow, some of the high temperature crystals may not fully quench out to the hard crystals that we want and they re it's called retained austenite it, they'll stay in the mix even at room temperature mm-hmm. and they add nothing to the, the, the you're not getting any benefit from them uh-huh. so by quenching them way down to uh you know liquid nitrogen temperatures minus 300 fahrenheit you can finally fully quench out the retained austenite you'll get all the martensite you want you have to, and you'll realize the full potential of the steel. Right. Cool. It works too. Cool. Yeah. All right. Here's the question for you. Sure. Uh, years ago, I was teaching at Peters Valley Craft School out in uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and um, the campus is is all blown up. Really, there's you know some stuff close in the blacksmith shop, pottery studio, but woodworking is a couple of miles away. And I would walk or, or ride a bicycle out there. And one day I ran into a student who was going to the weaving class that was also out there. And we got into a discussion about steel. And he told me, and I please correct me when I'm wrong, because I will be wrong. But he told me that there were three types of blade steel that emerged around the, around the world, you know, in, in our history. Uh, so there was Japanese steel and I want to say Persian steel, well, Damascus steel. Okay. Damascus That's steel, Japanese yeah. steel. Is it Spanish steel? Is that does that does that does that make sense that there are three types of well steel? I I this is not I I don't know this particular bit of the steel history and I've not heard this so I don't know if he's right or not. I can't answer it with definitively. Um, the the Damascus steel and the Japanese uh, folded, you know, like the samurai sword type steels, are a very similar process where you take a a piece of a a high carbon steel and a piece of low carbon steel, you weld them together, you draw them out, you fold it, you draw it out and fold it and fold it and fold it, and you end up with these incredibly thin layers, alternating layers of 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 the very hard steel and the very tough steel, so you get the best of both. That's the theory. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, I know that Toledo, uh, Toledo, uh, Sheffield, Pittsburgh, um, the the place in Sweden was Eskilstuna. 
those I it's my opinion that those places had very clean iron ore so the steels they made were exceptionally good mm. and they became famous as steel places for the for the quality of their steel um, I'm not answering your question exactly because I don't really have an exact answer for your question no that's okay I mean this was just a gentleman I, I met on a path <laughs> in the woods so it could have been all my, my imagination, uh, but it was a fascinating conversation. You have a good imagination. Thank you. Here's a question. Is the story of steel the story of war or the story of civilization? Oh, what a great uh, great question. Um, I, would, I would like to be uh, nice about that and say it was the story of civilization. Um, I, yes, I've, said, <laughs> I, I've said somewhere that steel is more important to us than gold or any other metal because if you suddenly made all the gold on the planet disappear, we would have a problem with, oh, electronics and dental work and bling. But if you made all the steel suddenly disappear, our our infrastructure would simply collapse in right. a heap because right. we rely on it for everything. Right. So I would like to think that it all came together. Uh, the first steels were probably used as weapons. So uh, I, I uh, suspect there's a really good case to be made for for the other side of that argument. But I like to think that it allowed us to build things that we could not build otherwise. Right. Pretty interesting to consider, you know, how technology moved forward. Maybe it was based on our, you know, on war and maybe it was based on our need to create something else besides war, culture, perhaps. I'd, I'd like to think that, they, that there was some, you know, parallel development there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Well, we've done a lot of things technologically because of um, the defense spending, war spending uh, as a as a society, certainly in this country we have. But we get a lot of benefits from it from other types of technological advances and things that we use every day that are not war related that came from uh, you know, war, war research and all those labs out there doing that work. Right. Right. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Let me. Let me ask you this then. Mm-hmm. What is the future of, of this hand tool res, resurgence? I mean, we're, we're going through a renaissance now of hand tool use. Uh, yes. Is there, will it have legs, do you think? What do you think? Well, I think it's had legs for 36 years because I think I got in right at the beginning of it. Uh-huh. And I mean, when, when we started out uh, and uh, like Thomas Lee Nielsen started, I think the same year, he might have maybe a year on me in the, in the tool stuff the actual woodworking tools, but he, he started making his planes in, it was at 81, I believe. And that's when I started making knives. So, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this very parallel, uh, fine woodworking magazine was a year or two old then. And it was just a black and white thing. It was the, and it was the only national magazine at the time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Thomas and I, uh, uh, enjoyed this Renaissance, but we were just right there with something that people started needing. And then once the internet hit, not because I had a web page, but because uh, the, the woodworkers are chatty and word of mouth advertising is the best you can get. And suddenly things just started rolling much more easily than they used to. Uh-huh. So I think we've been enjoying this renaissance now for a long time. I don't see any sign of it abating. I think it's harder and harder for someone. I think if I wanted to make blades for planes now, starting cold now, I, I wouldn't be able to succeed at it because um, I, w- I was there first. I think a lot of the reason for, for a Hawk Tool's success is simply because we were there first with a better blade and people recognized it and uh, we have what you, know, what you call market penetration. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for now. So if you wanted to start making blades, and believe me, it wouldn't be difficult. It's there. There's no. There's no tricky technology here. This is World War II technology. It's it's mm-hmm. simple stuff. Machine shops and heat treating and basic steel you can go buy off the shelf. So if you wanted to break into this, you'd have to come up with some way of convincing everyone else that that your blades were better or I don't know cheaper or some some other way to differentiate them. Otherwise we're already there and there's not the market's not that big to allow too many people to compete with us right um so so that's a problem and I, you know you've seen you've probably noticed a number of uh saw makers for some reason making a handsaw doesn't require as much infrastructure or or something so it it has allowed over the last say 10 or 15 years uh, a number of small makers to to right. you know give it give it a good shot they're the nicest people ever they're making really high quality products but it's a tough road to hoe business-wise, and to break into that and to be able to get enough distribution and to actually to, to where you can actually make a living at it. So some of the small boutique toolmakers kind of come and go, or they don't quit their day job, and they, you see them only at the shows when they're taking their vacation time from their real jobs. Right. Um, and so, so I see the the and and the larger players have certainly expanded Woodcraft and Lee Valley are you know the 800 pound gorillas here they're they're doing terrific work for the most part i think what lee valley's doing is incredible the veritas gang are delightful and and really smart so they keep innovating but the basic set the basic toolkit of hand tools i think is well covered in terms of being updated to contemporary standards with contemporary materials contemporary um, uh, tolerances and, and technology i think Thomas has, has done a lot of that at Lee Nielsen with the same kinds of things where he started being, you know, with just simple machinery and has and has grown technologically. And some of his tools have have been made possible by advances in the in the manufacturing technology. Did I answer your question? Uh, I don't remember the question. <laughs> OK, I get it. Okay. <laughs> no, well, I, so, no, so, so is, is it going to continue? Uh, yes, I don't know if it can continue to grow as quickly as it did. I know that uh, in terms of our growth, um, uh, what's the word I want, uh, trajectory, uh, it has flattened out a little bit, but we're still growing every year. But we had the largest growth kind of in the middle of the run. Um, and uh, we now have more competition and, and that sort of thing. So, so we're not growing in the leaps and bounds that we were uh, a decade or two ago. But it's still growing. We're still selling more blades every year. I still I can't believe that everyone who needs one doesn't have one by now. Uh, you know how big is <laughs> they this? We're out. And thank you all so much. Yeah, <laughs> so, we're out. Yeah. Well, uh, my old Stanley hand planes um, have been transformed by your blades and cap irons. Thank you. I got to say that I don't know when the cap iron changed. When did that? Cap iron shape change about ten, fifteen years when, ago. When when did I bring out the, the our, our cap irons? Uh huh. Uh, well, why did I ask? Cause I don't have an answer for it anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, it, it completely transformed my hand plate. Now, it, with your blade on it, that number five old, it was an old Stanley, uh, was good. It was very good, but I put that cap iron on there and it's a, it's beefier than the blade and it bends it to its will and it eliminates flutter. You know, I've I've heard this a number of times. I've even heard people say that if you can only afford one, get the cap iron, not and and, and save the blade for when you have more money. I believe um, that. that. And that really surprised me. The main reason I did 
breakers in the first place was simply because people needed them because their original stock breaker was all chewed up or, or rusted out or missing. Right. So I thought, okay, I get enough requests for something, I'll add it to the line. Uh-huh. And then I started getting this the same feedback that you just said, and it really quite surprised me. But so I had to kind of think, what's going on here? What what are the real? It it, it forced me to reanalyze the whole dynamic of of what's happening right down at the cutting edge. Right. And it's it's my uh, opinion, and my statement is that we have we make a thicker breaker. It has a very slight bend in it. It has to have some, or it won't work right. Right. And the in a bevel in a in a in a plane that uses a breaker the blade is used with the bevel down so that the entire bevel is cantilevered and unsupported it's now when i say entire bevel it sounds like a lot it's not it's three sixteenths of an inch or something that's actually hanging out in space so when you're cutting something that is going to vibrate because that's just what happens out there it's being pushing through fibers and it will vibrate and you can hear it it makes a shishi sound or or that noise that is familiar to plane users if you put the chip breaker and especially a stiffer chip breaker and set it so that it is right down at the cutting edge you've you've you're preloading this this cantilevered edge diving board and you're putting a, you're pre-stressing it so that it doesn't vibrate as much anymore Mm-hmm. And I've heard a number of people with comments such as yours, and they include the fact that it sounds different when they're planing. So that reinforces my sort of whole theory of what's going on there. It's it's pretty interesting. And and I think I, I want to bring up this topic because it's it sort of relates to the whole worldwide uh, idea of, of working with hand tools. There are many different approaches to... Um, using these hand planes from the you know oriental approach, which is to pull the tool Japanese approach to pull the tool towards you, right? Um, and the European wooden bodied planes, right? And then the Stanley model. So right. there are many different approaches to doing the exact same thing. How can these things be good if you don't have mass? But I think eliminating that blade flutter is a big part of the deal. The the other way to achieve a similar result, uh, in, in, in other, there are several ways to tune up a plane and make it work well. You can get really good results without a breaker at all with a beveled down plane. If you ask someone like Conrad Sauer or you know some of the infill makers, they they're doing that and their their planes are absolutely flawless and they perform flawlessly. So I, I think there's like three or four other other than simply fettling a plane and getting it the sole reasonably flat and the mouth reasonably square and all those kinds of things, the the blade should be bedded securely and all those basics. You you can eliminate or reduce uh, tear out with, of course, a sharp edge and all that, but also an incredibly thin mouth. I make the joke that the mouth should be just big enough to let the blue light through. Um, And, or, or you can achieve that with a chip breaker that's set very, very close to the cutting edge. Or you can put a back bevel on the blade, which is essentially the same as setting the chip breaker close uh, in terms of the actual physics and the geometry. Mm-hmm. But if you can have all of those things happening, then, then you're going to get you know, the, the flawless, super thin read-through shaving with no tear-out and a perfect glassy surface behind the cut. And apparently, different culture, woodworking cultures around the world have learned this same thing, and they've 
made it work through a variety of different geometries, all of which are maybe slightly different, but they're, there's, they're more similar than they are different. Well, the one bit of information I got some years ago um, from uh, Ellis Wallentine yeah. uh, came through town and he said, have you heard about these guys, uh, Kawhi and Cato? Yes. And I said, no, I hadn't heard about these guys at all. And so I watched their videos, and I'm I'm completely sold on the idea. I've taken one of your uh, breakers and regrounded it at 60 degrees, and it changes the way it works. It it really compresses the shaving, but it allows me to, to have one hand plane set for really difficult woods and that high-angled chip breaker, and it goes right through it. Do you, right do, you, do you then see any reason to, to use... Any other geometry? Wouldn't that then be the ideal plane geometry for the breaker, the blade, and everything? Yes. Okay. I don't, I don't see a reason to, to to mess around with a tight mouth open. I don't need it. That sh- that shaving is getting compressed. Now, the issue I have is getting rid of that shaving because it tends to clog up the, the mouth. Um, have you experimented with changing that that the, the, the micro bevel that you put on the breaker? Well, you said 60 degrees. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about changing that and, and experimenting I, to see if you can get it to both compress the shaving and eject it at the same time? Well, I think yours come at, what, a 45-degree angle? Is that? I don't have that spec in front of me, Gary. Now you're testing my memory. Yeah, I, I, it's about a 45-degree angle, so I'm increasing it 15 degrees. The the video that Kawhi and Kato put out, oh, geez, 20 years ago, and these are two Japanese wood techniques took a blade, a very thick blade, and passed wood through it and um, with a microscope and a camera attached to it, filmed what happens to wood fibers. And so um, I was able to use a 60-degree angle. They were up to a 90-degree angle. I'm scared of that, <laughs> so I'm not going to try that. Because uh, it's hard enough to push the 60 degrees. Uh, yes, there, there is, there is a, there is no free lunch. So the, no. the trade-off is that you have to push a bit harder. It's definitely work, but uh, for certain, for certain uh, cuts, I, I say, oh, I'm, I might have some trouble here, and uh, switch over to that, uh, cool, to that other hand plane, and uh, yeah, it, it works pretty nicely. I have to open the, uh, set the frog back just a little bit to get the mouth opening bigger. But uh, okay. anyway, it's Good. fun. This is Good. fun stuff. One of the things I recognize uh, for myself and uh, and for others uh, who have been around for a while is the need to keep at it. What do you think about the, that quality of perseverance for a toolmaker? I, I think for any um, small business or entrepreneurial project or enterprise, I think it's the most important thing. The, uh, you, you can. It's not about capitalization or education or what degrees you have. It's about being able to stick to it. And I had uh, one huge advantage other than that. I, I mean, I liked what I was falling into and, and being led into by, by this incredibly generous woodworking community saying, Ron, make these now. Okay, I will. Um, but I also had a, a wife that was willing to go and actually get a real job. And, you know, she supported there. There were a lot of lean years and there were a number of years when I was wondering, when do I have to go get a real job? Right. Shudder. Um, and, <laughs> So yeah, well, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, so she, she's Linda says I'm unemployable. She tells people that all the time, and she's probably absolutely right. Uh, so, but but that allowed me to persevere and to stick with it long enough to actually 
finally get, it's like riding a bicycle. There's a point where you finally start pedaling. You say, oh, okay, I'm not going to fall over now. This is going to work. And even though there was still a lot of lean years between then and now, um, there was a point where I, I recognized that this was going to be okay and that I could see it growing and I felt some confidence, even though a part of an entrepreneur's job is to worry all the time about, you know, what's going to happen next month and can I pay my bills and all those kinds of things. Uh, it does get better and perseverance is, I think, the, the, uh, the, the primary attribute. I think it was... Uh, was it uh, Woody Allen gets gets credited with this quote? He says he says ninety percent of success is showing up. So right. yeah, so I've been showing up. I have to agree with you that one of the job characteristics um, for an entrepreneur is is worry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a fact. It is a fact, and and if you're not working eight days a week, <laughs> no, you're not doing your job. Yeah, there's that. I I quit I quit the weekend working when when our son was born. Uh-huh. I realized I had I had important things to do on the weekend instead of working all the time. So I and I I, I almost followed that rule as I mean as best I could. You know I, I cut it way back so that I could spend more time family time. That's uh, smart. But it was a, it was at a time when thing when when like I said the bicycle was starting to roll and I felt like I could. Um, but you you know you can hire out almost any part of your job. You you can but you can get a bookkeeper to do your books and about all that kind of stuff. But you can't hire out the worrying part. That, that <laughs> maybe there's a new career. Some we no kidding. Hire official worriers. What do you think? I like it. I would hire that person. <laughs> the money. It's you know, I think you could just you could just say, I don't think I'm going to worry about the day today. I'm going to turn it over to my official worrier. <laughs> so for anyone listening out there, if you have these skills for worrying at an enormous rate, uh, for Ron or myself, uh, yeah, please, give me a call. Yeah, get in touch with us. Yeah, that would be super valuable. <laughs> Ron, thank you so much for chatting. This was just you, great. This was just great. Um, so informative. And so your website address is? Oh, www.hocktools.com. H-O-C-K-T-O-O-L-S.com. Great. And we're at northwestwoodworking.com. Please check out our schedule of classes and workshops and come back and check out our next podcast, which will be on something fantastic. I just don't know what yet. Thanks, Ron. I look forward to it, Gary. Take care.